0: I'm on the rise of a lifetime I'm on a ship that's sailing To uncharted shore And I won't be coming back here anymore I'm on a way
1: from the Mecca, Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets biblical Christianity face-to-face. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. We praise the true and living God for allowing us to be part of this, his ministry. And um, and uh, we are grateful that you've tuned in, whether it's uh, live streaming, if you're here in the studio audience, or if you're gonna be watching later on in the archives. You know, we're grateful for those who uh, support and are interested and watch these things and we pray that they're doing some benefit. Okay, to all interested parties, the ministry sent a letter, an email out yesterday to about 20 uh, recipients, uh, 10 of them being at the top of their game. R.C. Sproul, David Allen, um, Bob Millet with Mormonism. Uh, What's the other guy's name for, for Roman Catholicism? Oh, what's the other guy's name from Open Theism? Ooh. What we're gonna do in February of 2015 is we're hosting a conference. We're not sure where it will be yet. It's gonna be depending on the response. We're calling it Sunday's Best. And what it's gonna be is we're trying to get the very best representatives of specific points of faith, for instance, Roman Catholicism. Bob Millett uh, from BYU, professor of ancient studies has agreed to come. Uh, We are, Calvinism, we hope to get R.C. Sproul. And Arminianism and open theism and these different people, Greg Boyd's open theism. And we're gonna give the floor to them to give their best pitch to about 10 different areas of questioning not specific to the Mormon Christian debate or to, the, or to Catholicism or to Calvinism, but 10 essential questions. And we're gonna give them 60 minutes to 90 minutes to do their best to pitch why Calvinism, why Arminianism, why Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, why it represents God and his will and Christianity best. And uh, we're gonna be selling tickets and then we're going to use the funds from that to both pay our presenters to bring them in and house them. But we're also going to use it to duplicate it and provide it to people. Usually, we end up providing those things free of charge because uh, that's just how it works. So pre- be prepared for that. And now, we realize that here in the state of Utah, a lot of people still have a bitter taste in their mouth from my person. And uh, you know they, they may let this. That bitter taste prevent them from participating that's fine but if you know anybody who would be interested who's qualified and capable to participate in this conference please call us at 888-868-4686 or email me at sean sean at aletheamenicemedia.com and uh, we will get back to you we're just getting in the works we've got some time but we want to do it right and uh we want to invite everybody who would be interested in hearing those things presented with that let's have a word of prayer father we thank you in jesus holy name for sending your son to uh, bring us to faith to save the world uh, from the sin that it baths and roils in we pray that you will help us in our struggles help us to understand you better as we study your word pull from it, talk about it. We pray for those who are seeking, that they will discover you. And as uh, we pray here in the ministry, that this state, Utah, will catch on fire for the Lord and um, will burn with your spirit in, uh, and the truth that comes with worshiping you in spirit and truth. We love you, Lord. We're grateful for everybody who helps, participates. You know who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week, we illustrated a number of things on the whiteboard through heuristics, those are drawings, you know, that illustrate, for you to consider relative to Christianity and how the Bible kind of lays it out. And um, there was one thing I wanted to point out before we move on to our next topic. Last week, I explained briefly that there are four dimensions, and the first dimension being length, and the second dimension being length and width, which gives us a flat plane, a single-dimensional figure. The third dimension being length, width, and height, which now we can have a three-dimensional figure. And then the fourth dimension being everything in the first, second, and third dimension, and the fourth dimension being time. Well, one thing I didn't point out, and I'm gonna to go to the whiteboard right here. This is what we talked about. I'll use the red pin to help. But I would suggest that the first and second dimension, the flat figure, represents the people in this area. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this right now is because Joseph Smith, in his articulation of the heavens and what people and where people will go to based off that articulation, he said that those people who go to the lowest kingdom are the liars, murderers, adulterers who did not believe in Jesus Christ, did not believe in Mormonism, and we might consider that those people right here. I'm not trying to bridge the gap and bring them together. I'm just saying Smith knew his Bible he was very smart, and he just incorporated this through his imagination, things that he had read. So that's the first and second dimension. The third dimension is right here, and that is uh, uh, length, width, and, and a height. And there we have a three-dimensional figure that we drew. And, uh, and so we could say that Smith called this the terrestrial kingdom. We could say Smith called this the, T. uh, uh, this is telestial, excuse me, and this is the terrestrial. Now, you know how Smith describes the terrestrial? He says that these are men and women who were valiant in their faith in Christ. So we know that they came in, according to Smith, into the door of Christ, but they reject Mormonism. And so they enter the middle kingdom, which he called the terrestrial, which I would liken to somebody who's been born again, and they have been inflated with the spirit of God. I know we're getting out there a little bit, but I see this very plainly in what he was thinking. Finally, the fourth dimension, which is uh, length, width, height, and time, where somebody fully grows to capacity, Smith called it the celestial kingdom. And this is where people rise to the highest level through Mormonism. But really, it's a biblical premise, and that's when people become joint heirs with Christ, by and through their faith and love exhibited. All he did was take biblical concepts, he was a genius, forget about it. And he was able to take them, but he stepped outside of his imagination, he stepped outside biblical constructs, and he offered the world a system that he made up on his own. Of course, it gets much worse, uh, when we look at it uh, in another way. But that's the first thing I want you to understand. Uh, oh, not the first thing. That's the last thing I want you to understand about that topic last week. Okay, now, the other thing is, I'm not endorsing Smith in any way, okay? But uh, the man was intelligent. He did know his Bible. And so that's why we go back to that counterfeit uh, thing that we talked about, how it is such a good counterfeit because there are so many things that smack of biblical truths. It would be a terrible counterfeit if nothing he said resonated to the Bible or to people who study the Bible. But it, it certainly steps way outside of that and borrows and, and creates outside of it. Now, I know many of you got this other part down uh, really well, but I just wanna cover it really quickly because we're going into a new topic tonight. <clears throat> and that is our purpose for this year has been to take Mormonism represented by this female figure, bring her up here on the platform called marriage, have her hold hands with the Christian male, and to toss all the junk that the Mormons teach and all the junk they teach about God and soteriology and being a Christian and put it in the waste can and have the truth of what remains come out in the end and have a brand new baby, okay? That's what we've talked about. So we've covered God. We want the things that Christians talk about that are not biblical, that are from the mind of men to get tossed. And soteriology, the same, of what it means to be a Christian, the same. And in the end, we wanna come forward at the end of the year and come up with, okay, we've gotten rid of both sides garbage. These are the things that we can stand on. Well, tonight, we are going to begin on a new topic. We finished these three. The next one is the Bible. What is garbage that the LDS brings to the table about the Bible? And then what the Christians have imputed into the Bible through tradition and philosophy and say that it's a, a, a biblical, um, uh, uh, it's, bib- it's biblically presented. Okay. Now I have my good friend here on his knees picking up all my notes. Thank you. A service by Bishop Earl, you might recognize him. Um, You wouldn't have recognized the side of him that the audience just saw. (laughs) That one I can get rid of. All right, let me just make sure these are in place. Okay, let me look at this. Okay, one more thing, sorry. That one's no good. All right, let's go to the first graphic, Merle. I think you're gonna try to save me here. The first graphic comes from the book of Exodus, and it says, and the Lord said unto Moses, Write this for memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua. We go on, Isaiah 38 reads, Now go, write it before them in a table and note it in a book. This is God talking. That it may be for the time to come forever and ever. Jeremiah wrote in chapter 32, Thus speaketh the Lord God of Israel, saying, write thee all the words that I have spoken unto thee in the book. Habakkuk 2, or Habakkuk 2.2 says, and the Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. And then we come to Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians 14.37, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. That's huge. John the Beloved wrote in 1 John two thirteen, I write unto you fathers, because you have known him who, that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you little children, because you have known the Father, okay? Sorry, my pages are messed up, so I gotta to try to find them one more time. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.25, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Peter called Paul's writings scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. Jesus said to John in Revelation 1:11, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and what thou see, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Now I have a question for you. Why did God tell all these men, going back some 3,500 years or more, to write? So that it could be lost? so that they couldn't be trusted? So that it was, it was fallible and a joke and made up and a big collusion among people so that the Catholic church could take it and destroy it? So that nobody would know the truth? Why does Jesus say heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away? Why did the Psalmist write that God magnifies his word above his own name? That's, that's a real emphasis on the word of God and how important that word is. How can God expect people to keep his commandments if the record of his commandments aren't reliable? Is the God who created everything from nothing, who measures the span of the heavens with his hand, who controls all things, is he powerful enough to bring forth the words he commanded men to write forward to this day and age unscathed so we could read and gain and grow spiritually? These are just a few questions of the hundreds of questions I have regarding the certainty of God's holy word known as the Bible. Now, there seems to be a couple central themes that Christians are attacked for when it comes to their faith or trust in the word of God. The first is, They go after deity, the deity of Christ, the story of Jesus, his resurrection, things like that. But in close second, today especially, and what we're gonna talk about tonight, comes the criticism regarding the reliability and the exclusivity of the Bible as God's holy word. Now I say the reliability and, and the exclusivity of that being God's holy word because everybody who seems to attack it that is of another faith seems to say it's not reliable and it's not exclusive. That's one of the things that you'll hear echoed through proponents of the Bible being bad. We have long maintained that if somebody can get another person to believe that the Bible cannot be trusted, that somebody can be made to believe anything. Anything at all, I can, I can. If I could get you to lose faith in the Word of God, I am then in the position to get you to believe that green elves uh, live in my basement and go out and make socks at night. I mean, I can make you believe anything because you have nothing really to stand upon except your feelings and your imagination and what you might want out of your life to do, what your flesh might want, etc. Happens all the time. One remarkable fact about the Bible is that it doesn't have an owner. Have you ever thought of that? It doesn't have any sort of, uh, now certain translations do, but the Bible itself is owned by God. It was, it was put together and gathered together and the writings of many, many different men. And nobody has taken that and copyrighted the Bible. Now, some people have copyrighted the uh, Thompson Chain or the NIV or the ESV translations, but the Bible itself, there's no owner. The Bible is a free uh, uh, book. Additionally, in and of itself, within its covers, it has or contains everything necessary to, for someone to come to faith and for somebody to walk by faith. God has included all he wants people to know. You notice in Genesis, where there's these giant institutions and people rambling on and on and on about the creation, it's really a short little thing that God says. He gives us a few things. We have big giant uh, volumes of man's writings about what it means and what it says and when this happened and when that happened. God, you know, he didn't give us any kind of real insight into all that. He just said, look, in the beginning, God, if you can believe those words, you can believe the whole thing. So what the nuances are and what all that other stuff means, I think we can disagree. God purposely didn't give us all the answers. Do you trust that in the beginning, God? So the same can't be said of these other religious books that are proprietary products of the religion that they endorse. Dianetics, L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics, A Course in Miracles, uh, the Koran, the Book of Mormon which, by the way, Smith tried to sell the copyright once for money, uh, and he couldn't do it, so the church still has the copyright, but uh, he tried to sell it once for cash. And yet, so many people who are willing to place their faith and trust in books like these, and some even more far-fetched than these, insist on labeling the Bible as faulty and fiction and a bunch of men who got together and created the thing. I'm telling you, the fact that even the Bible... that even Bible-believing Christians can be tricked and misled tells us something about the cunning powers of of deception that are out there. Uh, One man who understood the fact that if you can get people to not believe in the Bible's reliability, you can get them to believe anything else was this guy named Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith Jr. Back in 1827 through 1829, Joseph had been telling people in his wooded neighborhood that um, he was visited by an angel. And on the eve of the autumnal equinox, by the way, and you can study that, this angel revealed to him a place, a hill near his home, where there were golden plates buried and that he was going to get and translate into another book. Over the course of around seven years, Smith had been promising to bring forth this new revelation from this book, this new translation, and he assured many that it was going to be a book of ancient um, origin. Now, once the book known as the Book of Mormon was published, a reader could open it up, and within 30 pages, read a built-in attack on the Bible. 30 pages in, okay? He's no dummy. In First Nephi 13:38, it says, "Of the Bible, "Wherefore thou seest that after the book, meaning the Bible, has gone forth through the hands of the great and abominable church, meaning the Catholics, that there are many plain and precious things taken away from the book, which is the book of the Lamb of God." OK? So right there in the Book of Mormon, there's a built-in argument against the Bible. This was not something original to Smith. There was a restorationist movement going afoot with Alexander Campbell. They were trying to restore the true church. Smith simply said, look I'm gonna provide a new one. His dad probably saying, yeah, son, we really need something. And so right there, first 30 pages, the Bible has been messed with. And the plain truths of it have been stripped out by the great and abominable church. In other words, it can't be trusted. Not too many pages later in 2 Nephi, the Book of Mormon presents a built-in justification for its own existence, okay? Uh, And has God himself say, wherefore, because you have a Bible, you need not suppose that it contains all my words, neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. (laughs) It's such, I mean, it's such a con. It's just, it's so funny. I mean, that, that, that second Nephi nine six, Smith has the audacity to have God say, well, it, it, you know, just because you have the Bible, it doesn't contain all of my words. And I have not, don't suppose that I have not caused more to be written. You know, that's what the Quran says. It says that the, 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 the testament of Christ, that's important. We believe in Jesus. But the final testament, the last testament, is the Holy Koran, uh, you know, and they go on and talk about that. So right in the founding writings of Mormonism, we discover a two-pronged attack on God's word. It states the Bible cannot be trusted, the Catholics have messed with it, and that there are other writings that will come, and God has more to say. This method is used by the Scientologists, by the Christian scientists, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, almost every single religious group centered on the ideas and thoughts of man instead of what God has told men to write. As time passed, Smith continued to subtly demean the Bible. Okay? Now, listen. The LDS Church today can distance itself from the history of these things found in the Journal of Discourses and Early History but it has formed the foundation upon which the religion sits. And so while they might not even quote these things as much anymore, it is, it is seeped through every fiber of the Mormon church. In the LDS article of faith, Smith said, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. That's like saying, I trust my wife is faithful as long as she's next to my side. You know, it, you throw an automatic problem in there. Now, unfortunately, the way and method the LDS determine if a Bible verse has been translated correctly is if it supports its later revelations, and if it doesn't, they'll say, "Ah, oh, it's been altered with. That doesn't, we, we know we can't really trust the Bible. When you prove something, you know you really can't trust it. Founding prophet Joseph Smith quoted in teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 310, also said this, listen to this. There are many things in the Bible which do not, as they now stand, accord with the revelations of the Holy Ghost to me. (laughs) He's like, you know, I read this in the Bible, the Holy Spirit says, no, no, no. This, This one I don't get. Now, I do understand that there are difficult passages and there are things that aren't easy to get. And with the flesh, certainly, it doesn't all just automatically come. And you have to study and you have to work it out and do your homework. But Smith just says, as the, as the Bible now stands, it doesn't accord with the revelations of the Holy Spirit to me. And so he rewrote it, essentially. So from this little collection of subtle statements Joseph Smith released against the Bible while he was alive, this great dismissive snowball started with Smith and began to roll downhill. Late apostle, apostle Orson Pratt said, Who in his right mind could, for one moment, suppose the Bible in its present form to be a perfect guide. Who knows that even one verse of the Bible has escaped pollution? <laughs> so we are talking about, I mean, just an amazing statement. When we have, when we have manuscript evidence and scholars thousands of them who have worked and studied to look at the manuscript evidence and all the stuff that comes forward. And Apostle, LDS Apostle says, I mean, it's hard to believe that even one verse could be trusted. Now again, this builds the foundation of how the LDS view the Bible today. They may not read Pratt. They may not read McConkie who said, Satan guided his servants in taking many plain and precious things and many covenants of the Lord from the Bible so that men would stumble and fall and lose their souls. Okay? That was McConkie who was the apostle when I was alive. Now, so listen, so from 300 AD or so, the Bible was tweaked and unreliable to all men until 1830 when the Book of Mormon was published. Bible's still unreliable, but now we have the perfect Book of Mormon. 1,530 years Satan reigned and stole souls and ruined them because the Catholic Church got a hold of God's book, the Bible, and took out plain and precious truths. Okay? So look at what He what what they're presenting. That God could not stop that, that the Bible wasn't trustworthy. 1530 years go by, these people are all lost. And still, by comparison, it continues to lead souls to hell because it's what Christians go by today. So in essence, what Mormonism teaches is Jesus failed, God failed, the apostles failed, the Bible has failed, everybody who trusted its soul has been led to hell, they've lost their soul, and only Smith's work in 1830 is something that saved mankind. You wonder why they sing praise to the man, and you wonder why people criticize them for worshiping Joseph Smith. If you think about it and what they're saying is true, I might even consider worshiping Joseph Smith. Of course it's not. But if it was, I mean, it would be like, he's the one who, who actually brought our salvation. Praise Joseph Smith, Jesus couldn't do it. You see, it doesn't make any sense, does it? When you really just start looking at what they have done, it's diabolical. In 1991, Brigham University professor Robert Matthews wrote, soon after the New Testament was written, there were persons among the Gentiles who systematically, with wicked motive and evil intent, removed portion of the sacred word and took from the Bible very much important doctrinal information. Yeah, I bet. Like the um, temple ceremony that you guys do, you took from the masons. Those wicked Gentiles stole it out of the Bible. It's really bad. So even though the elders continue to include the Bible in the four books they call Scripture, and the bottom line reality is the Bible within Mormonism proper is considered unreliable, especially compared to the Book of Mormon. It's considered corrupt to some degree or another. No one knows how. Uh, it is not taught in the Mormon church, but what is taught is Mormonism through the Bible. They do not teach the Bible, I guarantee you, no matter what their claims. And it's an inferior source of scripture to all other LDS scripture and modern day revelation. I suggest here and now that the single most damaging doctrine, I've said it before, that Joseph Smith introduced to Mormonism was not the strange and esoteric teachings. I mean, there's a lot of Christian churches that have very strange teachings too. It's not their strange history with Brigham Young and stuff. It's not even their temple rites, even though those make me ill. Uh, those things are the result of the single most damaging doctrine Smith introduced, and that was people cannot trust the Bible and what it says, and it's not enough. So what is the result of Smith and those who followed him in saying the Bible can't be trusted? Every time a Latter-day Saint reads the Bible, they discount it in their heart. They say they love it. It's discounted somehow. It has to be because all of this stuff is in the history and comes forward from their elders and from the teachers and and just comes, it flows through subtly to them. Every time they read a passage that causes them to think. They read in Romans where we are saved, or they read in Ephesians, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast. Catholic church, you know oh, not, not, you know, they, don't, they won't let it seep in. They have a built-in defense against that word coming in and helping them. And then they print their own version of the King James. They say they read the King James, but it's prefaced by these, the, their own subheadings to each chapter. And then the cross-references are to the Book of Mormon, Dr. Cone's Pearl of Great Price, and Joseph Smith's inspired version of the Bible, which was a, a partial translation of the thing. So what needs to happen? Mormonism to play on the you know, even, even keel here. When it comes to the Bible, I would suggest what needs to go in the trash can is they need to begin to consider the Bible reliable. If they wanna say they're Christian, they have to say the Bible's reliable. I mean, or all the arguments I've brought up it works against them when it comes to just pure rationality. Okay, they need to teach it. They need to be teaching Romans and Galatians, and Ephesians, and Colossians, and Philippians in, in their Sunday schools. And they need to go verse by verse and teach it if they believe in it. They don't do that. They need to, they need to tell their, their believers, listen, we want everybody to have read the New Testament by the end of the year, the way they talk about the Book of Mormon. Because when they do that, it will bring the word in, and the word is not returned void, okay? And they need to ensure that any inspiration that comes from their leadership are in harmony with the word. You can't have a prophet saying he's the prophet of the church who speaks something doctrinally against what the Bible purely says. I know that's a big order, but we're talking about trying to level the playing field. And when it comes to the Bible, a lot of work needs to be done. With that, let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. We're gonna come back and take your calls. While the operators are clearing your calls, we have Jeff in Danbury, Connecticut. We'll take him first. But uh, we meet here for church at 10 and at 2.30, and we study the Word of God verse by verse, but we also sing it. Take a look at this.
0: For Christ is the end of the Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, "Oh."
1: CDs on uh, a four CD discount pack go at hotm.tv you can also go to iTunes if that's the, your way your vehicle for listening to music type in Mallory McCraney at iTunes and you can pick them up there let's go to Jeff in Danbury Connecticut Jeff you're on heart of the matter
2: hey Sean hi okay, I have a, a question a, kind of like a thought maybe a comment that you could give to it it could even be a topic to another show and that's regarding uh, I was thinking like Joseph Smith and other false prophets, it seems that we, as taking a tradition on the Church, allow this, because we get someone that goes up, and we lose the protocol of proper rebuke in front of other people, because I find that me, for instance, in church, there's sometimes the pastor will say something, and you know, they're, they're not perfect, but you know, sometimes they'll, they'll make a, a, a minor error, and you want to say something, but you're like, all right, if I say something, and, you know, this is not the right time, the right place, but it actually is because I read that, you know, how the women are supposed to keep quiet, but I I don't really get on that, but what it shows is that men actually spoke when they got together. So it would seem like it was a combined language, not Mm. one person, everyone keep quiet
3: kind Mm. of
2: thing. I I wanted to see if you could give a comment maybe on that and see how we could prevent false prophecy of happening.
1: I think, uh, Jeff, uh, you're absolutely right. I don't believe I think and when we get to the final weeks of this year and talking about the church and uh, and how we do church and things but jumping ahead the the I do not believe that the teacher of the church uh, is in any position or the pastor teacher is in any position of superiority the greatest are servants and so yeah, yeah. and so therefore th- that the congregation should bring things up and uh, publicly and talk about those things no matter how they are. Now it gives the pastor uh, who is teaching publicly the right to respond publicly. And uh, it's an open dialogue. All, all the pastor is is a cog in the machine called the body of Christ. Not one bit better. There's no confession of sin to him. Uh, we covered this on, on Sunday actually at our own church. So I think you're right on it. We do a Q and A. The problem is I am so bold and scary that people are kinda of hesitant to ask and they'll approach me later. And there are also people don't like to speak, but I agree with you. I think it's a great practice to call everything out, say, wait a minute, you know, we don't necessarily like this. I'm not sure that you're right on this. And talk about yeah. it.
2: Yep. Yeah, that's good. And I, I think for any Christians that are listening right now, it's important, hey, if you've had that feeling like, oh, you wanna say something, you wanna say something, you're not alone. And I, I've, oh, I read the verse like, oh, it's better to be, hold your peace, he, who has more wisdom, you, keep, you, you seal your lips, you know, I take those problems, but then at the same time, I'm like, all right, now I'm being kind of a cop-out wuss, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like trying to balance the two, you know?
1: Hey, you make a great point. And, and, you know, really quite frankly, I know I get in so much trouble, but pastors today have somehow, many pastors, not all. Uh, my friend Richard made me clarify this. There's a lot of good pastors and good churches. But a lot of pastors think somehow they are above reproach and above being questioned, and that it's not Christian like for a congregate to say, I disagree with you. And yeah, that, yeah you are absolutely right. Great call. Uh, thanks so much, Jeff.
2: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it.
1: Okay, bye. bye. All right, listen, uh, LDS, we are in for uh, uh, more of a row with these guys because they are tough. The Mormon Church is moving forward with its plan to arm missionaries with iPad minis and broaden their social media. They did a test program last fall with 6,500 missionaries in the United States and Japan. Now they are moving it out to 32,000 missionaries' hands. Why? Because it's so effective. Uh, The iPad minis are outfitted with several apps that will help them find new members who the knocking on the door day to day is a waste of time because all people are working and not home. And so uh, it says missionaries are encouraged to use Facebook to find new members. I say, don't be on Spate. Sorry, Facebook. Uh, they, so they're encouraged by the church, get on Facebook, get on Facebook, you're gonna find new members there. And um, they also said in April, 2013, the church loosened its rules for internet use by missionaries, allowing them to email friends, priesthood leaders, and new converts, previously missionaries could only email immediate family members. Some have worried that the youngsters are gonna have more access to the internet could lead to distractions and wasted time. No. Uh, Speaking to that, Evans said, quote, listen, he's a spokesman for the church. Only really, the only really effective filter for lifelong technology use is the individual heart and mind of the individual young person. Well, I can tell you right now, the heart and mind of 90% of those individual young persons are gonna be clicking on the click on me's. And uh, so it's gonna be interesting to see how, how this works. Uh, they are expecting to uh, peak at 88,000 full-time missionaries by the end of this year and then settle around 77,000. We do one little show here for an hour a week. We got Bishop Earl doing a show. We got Doris Hansen doing a show. We got uh, Sandra Tanner's got her website. We got Bill McKeever's got his. We have got a handful of other people who are involved in the blogs and the things. We got Wendy Jensen doing her deal. Uh, And everybody's trying to throw in their best against 88,000 full-time missionaries equipped with iPads. I don't even know what an iPad is, to tell you the truth. All right, so I had a really disturbing story told to me this week. It was about a man who was in the process of getting a divorce. from his wife and he attended church and the pastor came down into the congregation and said, please leave. Uh, I've heard stories like this over the years and they baffle the hell out of me. They really do. Other than losing a loved one or being sick yourself, when would a person need to be in church more than when they're going through a divorce or an addiction problem or a problem with the law? When do we want people in church more than then? Now, if they're standing up and saying, we should all be divorced, I could see the, 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 the pastor saying, I think you should come back when you've you know, changed your attitude. But if somebody's going through trouble and it doesn't fit with your, your view of what they should do in their life, you ask them to leave, that was at a local Christian church here in town. What are we doing in Jesus' name? I mean, really? What have we uh, come to? I got a question for you all. I have a brilliant attorney friend. He- he's brilliant. And he brought this up to me uh, the other day. Think about this for a minute. Now, it's going to trouble you, I know. But on the one hand, let's say we have a homosexual couple who say they love each other. Now, I'm not promoting homosexuality. I believe homosexuality is a sin. Okay? I would tell any homosexual I believe it's a sin, but I believe. I'm in sin just by virtue of being in flesh. So I'm not gonna talk about that. But let's say we have a couple who believes they're in love, all right? Got them in mind? On the other hand, we have the LDS Church Conference. And the leaders are up there and they're sitting in their high platforms and then they're dressed to the nines and they're puffed up by their social status and they're teaching a gospel that is false, okay? They are burdening their listeners with tithes and offerings and temple attendance and Sabbath days and work, work, work to prove yourself right. They are doing exactly what Jesus accuses the Pharisees of in Matthew 23 for the whole chapter. Woe unto you, woe, woe, woe. You got those two images in your heads? Now here's the question. Based on what Jesus was like when he walked the earth, which scenario do you think got his goat the most? What do you think? And what are we spending our time focusing on and attacking? Sin that's in everybody's lives or this hypocrisy that comes in and through religion? If you know your Bible at all, you know that the Lord and King hated religious puffery. I mean, he ate with sinners and he worked with helping them see who he was to bring them out of sin eventually, we know that. But all of chapter 23 is dedicated to him ripping the religious pious attitudes apart. To be fair, it's not just the LDS, you know. The well-educated Tommy Bahama wearing Calvinistic snoots fit the bill too. Uh, So would a pastor who tells a man who's going through a divorce to leave the congregation. Uh, The church is a hospital full of sinful people who have been saved and some who have not. From the pastor on down, how anyone thinks they can throw this stuff uh, in other people's face, it, throwing stones in glass houses, it's just just beyond me. All right, we have three calls, sorry. Uh, we're going to Bob in Minnesota. Bob, you're on Heart of the Matter.
3: Yeah, hi, Sean, how
1: are you? I'm doing well. How you doing?
3: Excellent. Hey, uh, at the beginning of your show, you were talking about the uh, Bible and the Book of Mormon and how uh, uh, Joseph Smith uh, you know and uh, mormons don't believe it uh, being actual and factual and all that and i left the mormon church about a year ago uh, we talked uh, about several months ago and there's a particular book that i read that i found extremely good i don't know if you've ever seen it or read it it's from god to us how we got our bible by norman geisler and william nix yes and that just
1: is excellent Hey, you know what, Bob? I really appreciate you calling and telling our viewers that because it is an excellent book. I have it. I've read it. And uh, I I thoroughly was uh, moved by Geisler and his his mind on that. So thank you very much, Bob.
3: Thank you so much. And it was a bit of a hard read, but, you know, I struggled
1: through it. Yeah. And it just uh, really helped me coming out of the church. Amen. Thanks so much, Bob. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. We're going to Mark in Idaho. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter.
4: Hey, Sean, how you doing?
1: Doing well. How you doing?
4: I'm doing great. Hey, I got a question for you. I'm not sure if you uh, have a good answer or a answer, (laughs) but I've been kind of searching for churches and going here and there. And I was at one a couple of weeks ago, a Pentecostal church. And uh, during prayer, there was a lot of humbling noises behind me. Like, uh, well, I've been told it's like speaking tongues. And you've never talked a lot about tongue. What's your, uh, what's your feeling on tongue? Is it something that, and if you don't like it, get, stay out of it, or is it something that the Bible teaches?
1: Okay, Mark, I believe in uh, the spiritual gift of tongues. I believe that it is applicable contextually in two ways. Uh-huh. I, be- I believe one, there is speaking with the unknown tongue Uh, and that typically, I believe, is applied in prayer. It's a prayer language. The other one, I believe, when we look at Acts 2, and then we read contextually what Paul says about tongues, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 9 or 6, or 14, I can't remember, but uh, I believe that what it is is when somebody begins to speak in another language that they do not know, and somebody who understands that language interprets what they are saying. And Paul right. s- Paul says it is not for the church. Now he says it can happen. He wants decency and order, but he says it's not for the church. He said, I'd rather speak 10,000 words in, um, uh, I'm getting that mixed up. I won't qu- try to quote it. But bottom line, I would be very careful, Mark. I would yeah. be careful of these um, uh, emotive, experiential activities that churches thrive on to have a really good experience. And uh, I personally, I'm not saying they all are fraudulent. I think they probably come from good hearts, but I believe that they are people caught up in the passion of loving the Lord and they have just learned to express themselves that way. It's not that they're not Christians, but I would just be careful. In fact, I'm gonna say this one more thing, Mark, and then I'll let you talk. I have seen more damage from the hyper emotive churches and what they do to some people who get involved with them than I see in any other uh, problem in Christianity. So be very careful.
4: All right, yeah, I'm, 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 I, I, I moved on. I just wanted to hear what you had to say about it because I just, uh, I didn't understand what they're saying. So it, to me, it's not a, not a language. Yeah, a kind yeah of, there's gotta be an interpreter
1: and, and all those rules. But check my facts with the Bible, my brother. All right, I will, Sean. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for watching. You bet. Good okay. words. All right, thanks. Yep. Bye. Yep. We're going to John in Tulsa, Oklahoma. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yeah, is John. John, in you, Tulsa, got to, Oklahoma? Yeah, you got to turn your, uh, your computer down. I just down. turned it off. Yeah, I just turned it
3: off. I'm still watching what was going on in the past, evidently. But uh, what I called about was... Uh, the Bible that you can count on it and and I I believe that too but there are different translations of the Bible and some of them are better than others yes and and I had noticed before that you know like there are some scriptures that had been added that were in the older manuscripts uh, were not in the older manuscripts so there's some things in there that are questionable but it's just really minor stuff Uh, what's really wonderful about God preserving his word is like the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, now they have shown that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, is almost word for word. I mean, it's just so, it's 99% accurate. Yeah, it's astounding. You know what I'm saying? The old argument was, is that, well, we we only got 800 years after the original text, so we're not sure who jacked with the scriptures and who didn't, you see. But, the archaeological finds, the the Dead Sea Scrolls that are kind of like God's preserving his word through that and also through the spirit. You have to have the spirit while you're reading the scriptures.
1: Ding, 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 uh, ding. And,
3: and even then, sometimes people make mistakes because they jump to conclusions. That would be me. I just say you have to, you have, to have some heartfelt prayer and study those scriptures because in them, what Jesus said, well, you will find those that testify of me. And if you've got a testimony of Jesus, you're a walking prophet for yourself and your family. Because that's what it says. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. So that's the most important thing. And I guarantee you the gospel of Jesus Christ is in that Bible. And you don't have to have another book to find it.
1: That's a man from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I believe everything you've said. That's a beautiful message, John. I really appreciate you sharing it with us.
3: Thank you so much. And we love you. And God bless you. And you're doing a great thing.
1: Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. I love those testimonies of the word of God. I mean, what he's saying, you can just sense. And he's reasonable. He's being really reasonable. Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, it drives me nuts when we get so dogmatic that we say it is epissimus verba, word perfect, in our hands, King James only, shut up with anything else, this is it, because it's not. There are a couple issues. But that's reasonable when it comes to scribal a translation when an i looks like a, a one and little tiny and we're talking about 99.9 percent or whatever I might, i'm making that up 98 we're ta- and the things that are a little issues have nothing to do with doctrine or practice or any major theological issue typically dates a word here or there that's really what they are and i've looked at it You're, this is going to incense some people They're gonna say we're never gonna watch again and we're gonna stop supporting you because it is word perfect. It is in the original transmission from God's mouth to the prophet's ear who wrote, but as we've got it, there's just a couple little things like uh, our man from Tulsa brought up, but it is trustworthy. It is inerrant in its ability, infallible in its ability to bring people to Christ and bring them to what God wants. Uh, Robert in Florida on line one. Robert, you're on Heart of the Matter.
5: Sean, good evening. How are you doing? I'm
1: doing well. How are you?
5: I'm doing well. Um, Hey, I have a question uh, that my wife and I have been talking about, um, I guess, for quite some time now. And that is the name, the name of Jesus. Um, You were referring to the Roman Catholic Church and how they have taken the Bible and twisted it and things like that um i kind of wanted to know your understanding of the name of jesus and in specifically in acts chapter 4 verse 12 there's no other name by which we we might be saved now jesus honestly is a made up name and we are we're about four or five away from his actual name which could be Yeshua or Yahushua, and the reason that I bring this up is because in the Old Testament names were very important, and especially with um, with a Ya and Ha, and as you know, Ab- Abram, you know, God changed a- Abram's name to Abraham, Sarai to Saraya. Uh, there's Obadiah, <laughs> Isaiah, and the Yah and Ha is very important, and. The letter J wasn't even invented until 400 years ago. So, if we are to take this, you know, the name um, as very important, why do we use the name Jesus? And if we still do, then is it that we are also adhering to the traditions of men, as, as I've heard you rail against many times, and not using his real name of Yaheshua or Yeshua?
1: Okay. Uh, Robert, let me, uh, i tell you what, next week I'll do a From the Word that covers this topic, but let me just respond to you right now. Uh, first and foremost, when it says that there is no other name, um, I do not believe, and I'm, I'm going from memory of teaching that before, I do not believe it's speaking of the literal name. I think it's talking uh, in a Hebraism that means his person that no other name meaning his person, not the literal name. And the way I would justify this, and I could be wrong, is um, uh, uh, somebody who's Hispanic would call him Jesus and and if they were trying to use his real given name, Joshua or Yeshua, they would pronounce it differently. A German would pronounce it differently. And so what we have is legalism slipping into our thinking When we say it has to be Yeshua with a guttural H pronounced the proper way in order to be saved. And I do not believe that for a second. So uh, I think that we can get trapped by these little things and we can start building mountains out of them. But I do believe I can justify the use of the name Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, Lord, God, Christ. And I think that, that in the end, it's not the literal given birth name. Even though I know people will disagree with that, but I'm gonna next week. Give me a chance to do some research, and then I'll do our from the word. And then you can call back. We'll accept Robert as a second time caller. Operators, next week. You got it. Uh,
5: thank you. All right. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I've, I've been watching you for quite a few months now. So.
1: All right. We'll do uh, it. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Robert. Thanks for watching. All right. Bye. Bye. Listen, this goes hand in hand. I'm really glad we have, how much? Three minutes left. From Greg G., he says, uh, you know, I watched your Mormon Stories interview with John Delenn, and uh, he, he wrote, if you believe in the Bible and that it is the source of truth, how in the world can you make such an irresponsible statement that Christ saves people in many different ways? Okay, he writes in parentheses, in, in addition to Christ alone. I don't, you, have, you have to ignore so much in the New Testament to make such an assertion. Dude, love what you're doing, but please don't make up some deluded, man-made approach to the gospel just to satisfy your worldview. I know that interview is a few years old, so I pray that your definition of the gospel has read, been redirected since that time. And then he wrote me another one and says, I, uh, by the way, I think you should address this on your show. Your universalist position needs to be vetted. All right, listen. In that interview, the question was, does a person need to know the name of Jesus to be saved? Do we need to have an epistemological knowledge of Jesus and an ontological knowledge of Jesus to be saved? I was saved believing Jesus was my elder brother. I was saved believing that his name was Jesus. I was saved believing that uh, he was created by God, Heavenly Father in a pre-existence, and he and I shared that as spirit beings. So you, uh, uh, you, so if that can happen in my life as an American in, in Southern California, I know that it can happen to a, a person living in India who doesn't speak English, who uh, looks to the cosmos, recognizes something missing in their life, calls out to God who Jesus is in the flesh and can be saved. The saving is all done only through Christ Jesus and his shed blood. And in the end, that person will come to know that. But there's nobody on earth who can convince me that people have to be saved only in and through saying, Jesus Christ, like this caller brought up, or Yeshua. There is no way. I know too many people who have come to know God in and through other means, and that's what I mean. But in the end, it will all simmer down to it having originated and come from him and his shed blood and him alone. So don't mistake me. I have never said there are other ways to get to God. There is no other way to get to uh, uh, the Father, but by the Son. But I do believe that it, for instance, with children. All right, can you tell me that a three-year-old who gets hit by a car, who's never heard the name Jesus, a just God is going to send the child to hell to burn forever? I would say no, I would say the child is saved. By what? Jesus shed blood. Did the child ever call out? Now, some people would say it would have to. I am sorry. A just God, I do not believe that. Now we can get to the Calvinist opinions. Well, he knew that that child would be killed and didn't. I don't believe that. I don't believe there's any accountability on an infant who dies. I believe they are saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That our God is a good God. Our God is a just God. Our God is a fair God. He is merciful. And he so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son to save us. And those people who don't know the specific name, but they acquiesce and the Holy Spirit, that's the key, moves in by virtue of their acquiescence to a higher power. They will come to know that Jesus is Lord. Their knee will bow, whether in this life or in that. But you can't tell me that, uh, that the opinion that I shared with Dylan was incorrect. All right, we love you guys. Thanks for watching. Next week, we're gonna talk about some of the Christian views of the Bible. See ya then.
0: I'm on a ride, going nowhere. I am an existential cowboy on the wind. And I won't be coming out, I'm going in. This man's awake. A storm's arising, the dawn's waiting Till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkeys start